Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Eric Helms from 3D Muscle Journey. Eric is a coach, athlete, author, and educator. A trainer since the early 2000s, he's worked in the U.S. Air Force, commercial gyms, private training studios, medical fitness and strength and conditioning facilities. As part of the 3D Muscle Journey team, he coaches drug-free strength and physique competitors at all levels. Eric himself has competed since the mid-2000s in natural bodybuilding, unquipped powerlifting and recently in Olympic weightlifting. He's earned his pro status as a natural bodybuilder with PNBA in 2011 and competes with the IPF at international level events as an unequipped powerlifter. Eric has published many peer-reviewed articles in exercise science and nutrition journals and he also writes commercially for fitness publications. He has taught undergraduate and graduate level nutrition and exercise science and he speaks internationally at academic and commercial conferences for fitness, nutrition and strength and conditioning. Finally, Eric has a Bachelor's of Science in Fitness and Wellness, a Master's in Exercise Science, a second Master's in Sports Nutrition, and is a Strength and Conditioning PhD candidate at AUT in New Zealand. On this episode, Eric and I discussed many topics, including Eric's background and influences, like I asked every guest, the good and not so good things that Eric sees within the training profession, Eric's hierarchy for both strength and size development, training to failure, and much more. Now, the majority of this episode focused on one of Eric's ebooks. So, at the end of 2015, Eric released two ebooks. He released his Muscle and Strength Pyramid ebook, Nutrition Manual, and his Muscle and Strength Pyramid ebook, Training Manual. So, as you can tell by the titles, one was dedicated to nutrition for muscle and strength gains, one was dedicated to the training for muscle and strength gains. And we uh, dedicated this episode to the Training Manual. Uh, and I hope to have Eric back on in the future to discuss the nutrition manual. So this was a really, really great episode, guys. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, let's get to the show with Eric. Okay, Eric Helms, it's an absolute pleasure to have you come on to my podcast. Um, just for the listeners who might be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine is going to be nobody, <laughs> uh, just put us <laughs> in on the background. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's an honor. Um, you've had a lot of great guests, and it's great to be among them. Um, as far as me, I've been basically just a uh, – I started out as an athlete, and just a very, very curious athlete. Um, and by athlete, I mean that loosely in that I was a competitive – and still am a competitive natural bodybuilder and uh, powerlifter. So competitive uh, flexor and exerciser. So you can call that an athlete if you want. I like to pretend I am. Um, and then I made personal training a career and just kept taking it further and further. Uh, and I'm at the point now where I'm a one fifth of a 3d muscle journey, which is a coaching team where we coach uh, competitive drug free strength and physique athletes. And I, um, also on my own, make it a business to try to get uh, the best evidence based information out there to that community. Uh, and I'm finishing up my PhD here in New Zealand at the Auckland university of technology in strength and conditioning. And I did a master's in sports nutrition before that, and a master's in exercise science before that. And in general, I'm just a huge muscle geek. Um, what, what is your PhD focusing on? 
I'm specifically looking at auto regulation and strength training. So uh, mostly the use of a uh, RPE scale um, within the periodized structure for powerlifting. Uh, and that's the RPE scale, uh, mostly originally coined by Mike Toucher, who I believe you've had on before. Oh, if we're doing something optimal, because we can't do two things at the same time and compare the results. So optimal is always within the context of your reality. So basically, you have to think, what can I do, what will I do, and what will I adhere to long time for, for a long period? And then within that context, what is optimal? So for example, coming from a personal perspective, I'm going to be a good husband. That's a goal of my life. I want to get my doctorate. I want to be an effective coach. I want to travel and speak and help people. Within that context, how can I be the best competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter? And for me, that is optimal. So it almost kind of gives the entire way of interpreting the rest of the information where I go through you know, all the different levels of the more quantitative variables and what might be optimal, but then always bring it home to look. None of that matters if you're not able to do this, you don't enjoy it, or if, uh, you know, in the end, it's not something you could adhere to. Definitely, definitely. I, I, like, I love the examples you give, too, about, like, you know, if your father is six, or sorry, if you're, sorry, not father, if you're a father, uh, you have kids, you know, maybe a six-day-a-week bodybuilding split isn't going to be, the, you know, the best thing for you. So just, again, it was just, uh, as we spoke about, when you sit back and read this, you're like, oh, this makes sense. I mean, this is obvious, but again, so many people, like, they just even violate that first sort of priority of, you know, can you consistently stick to this program? Um, and mm-hmm. uh, we, we've all been there like in, in terms of um, ourselves when we were younger we all probably program hopped initially when we when we first got into the field and just doing everything because our early influences were always usually bodybuilding orientated and you know when when you be, when you become more knowledgeable in the field you realize that oh bodybuilding is really just about like volume and smashing your muscles and making sure you eat enough and sleep enough whereas when you're getting things like strength and power you need to be a lot more specific with your training these are these are these goals of strength and, uh, and power or speed like these actually need to be prior or periodized properly and you know, priorities in a certain way so you can kind of see where you went wrong along the way um your your second level then which i loved because something that I've, I've i was trying to find sort of guidelines on for such a long time were things like volumes um and intensity and frequency intensity maybe not so much because there seems to be good, you know, knowledge that either the hypertrophy or strength, you know, that kind of 60% and all the way up to your 1RM, 100% seems to be the bracket that most intermediate advanced athletes are going to spend the time in. But in terms of volumes and frequencies, I really, really, you know, it was excellent the way you mapped it out. So maybe just touch into as much detail as you want around the volume, intensity, and frequency chapter and the level two of the pyramid. Yeah, I, I uh, that those are really the key variables, you know. Um, and I think just, just getting people to acknowledge that volume, intensity, and frequency are the key variables is something uh, that, that is sometimes an uphill battle based on the messages we get. You know, if you even go back 10, 20 years ago, you would have a conversation uh, where, you know, the root of hypertrophy may not be seen as, you know, progressive tension overload. It might be, you know, creating acute fatigue, or at least that's where the focus is, or generating muscle damage even in the context of resistance training. Um, and you can see, you know, the recommendations of, you know, some pro bodybuilders from the 90s, you know, all centered around kind of intensity or damaging muscle or, uh, you know, hit is a great example, you know, high intensity training. Um, 
But now that we have enough, you know, data, and there's even more coming out now with a recent meta-analysis published, uh, we can see there's a pretty strong relationship between hypertrophy and volume, and a pretty strong relationship between strength and volume, although it's not quite as clear, which makes sense, because like you said, it's a performance variable, and it's much more um, victim to fatigue, and more yeah. nuanced, exactly. There's more components yeah. to, uh, to strength. You know, hypertrophy is a component to strength, not the other way around, right? Um, so I think just just getting people to acknowledge those are the key variables is, is a start, uh, and then understanding how they are different. You know, I like to use the paradigm of thinking to where, um, like you said, bodybuilding isn't quite as complicated. It is more about getting heavy enough volume, so enough that is actually seen as overload, uh, and then progressing that over time as needed to see the results of hypertrophy, because if hypertrophy is a component to strength and we want progressive overload, then we should see, you know, the improvement uh, on the bar, yeah. if you will. Uh, and then, so if that, that's volume, and, and that's basically intensity for hypertrophy. It needs to be heavy enough, and it needs to progress it. Uh, strength is much more specific. You know, as we know, doing 20 RM training is going to make you great at muscular endurance, and well, doing 20 RMs. However, doing uh, 20 RMs is not going to be as good at making you stronger. So your one RM strength is something in the you know one to five, one to six RM range. So strength is very much a specific quality in that it you know. We know this from a lot of research. You know, you'll have if you train at a certain angle, you'll get stronger at that angle. If you want to talk isometrically, if you train at a specific movement pattern, you'll get stronger at that specific movement pattern, and the transfer will be less how how far from that motor pattern other motor patterns are. And that's true of repetition ranges. So uh, strength is is skill, neuromuscular, and morphological. Uh, while you know, load for hypertrophy, it is just morphological, really. Uh, and then frequency is just the way that you organize all that. Um, and this is basically acknowledging that uh, with more volume comes a sacrifice in the quality of that volume. So if you were to try to get an entire week's worth of training into one day, that would cause some problems. You know, um, you would see more and more fatigue and a disproportionate amount of fatigue and even potentially poor motor, motor patterns being ingrained if, you're, if you really care about uh, that if you're, say, a powerlifter versus a bodybuilder and you're using compound lifts. Um, so really, it comes down to how do we organize our training in such a way to get the greatest stimulus uh, and the least amount of fatigue. Really manipulating, you know, VIF, volume, intensity, and frequency, is about fatigue management and, and supplying progressive overload in an effective way. Where and did then, you... Sorry to interrupt you. Where, no, go for it. Where did you... And it's funny too, because in Sean Fields, like spoke, which I only got the other day, the, the science about muscle hypertrophy. Where has this seven four? And I know, and I know it's a guideline, and I know like you definitely don't want you don't want people to say this is this is just guideline. It's not it's not a, ingrained in stone. So, but where did the sort of guideline of forty to seventy repetitions per movement or muscle group come from? And the two to time, two two to three times per week frequency. Like, is that just from a collective review of what you've seen in the literature, or uh, where where is that um, guideline come from? Yeah, that is straight out of a publication from 2007 called "The Influence of uh, Volume, Intensity, and Frequency on Muscle Hypertrophy" by Wernbaum. Um, cool. And I and that that's a pretty it's 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 not a true meta analysis where they ran complicated stats you know, uh, on the variables, but essentially they just collected a whole bunch of studies, uh, specifically looking at hypertrophy in the bicep, 
of the arm, and then the quadricep. And then just look at the independent variables of uh, sets, reps, total volume load, um, and uh, the frequency as well, and intensity, and try to look at where the highest percentage changes in hypertrophy were, uh, and where they started the plateau, and, and how they all interacted. Um, so I cautionarily use that as kind of the the basis of where volume probably should be. Mm. Um, so that 40 to 72 to three times per week is basically at the top of that, that bell curve when you look at that study of yeah. where hypertrophy tends to max out. And in both, it's kind of slightly rounded up. I think it might be like 42 to 66 or something like that or, or 38 to 68 or something like that. We, but we, I basically we, we just, won't hold you to it, Eric. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's also important, you know, one, one thing, I think this is what most people get get kind of hung up on that that chapter in my book is they almost apply that on a per session every week basis yeah and they forget that that nice little kind of all-encompassing thing i have on the side of the pyramid that says periodization um is always all-encompassing and periodization you know most simply put is just the manipulation of program variables mm -hmm. so you know, I also try to point out that, hey, that could also be, you know, two, three times a week at 40 to 70 is anywhere between 80 to 210 reps per week. So that's, that can be a very low volume week or a week where almost three times that volume is there. That could represent a deload and that can represent an overreaching week. So it gives kind of some ranges to work within it. And to be honest, I feel like my career, I'm fighting like a losing battle against the way the fitness industry underlying philosophy is, which is typically to give you either a good, bad answer. Um, and unfortunately that's even true in research. Like, you know, it's not hypothesis testing. It's either, it, it, even research gives you the sense that there's binary outcomes, either it, either this one, this, this protocol is better or that protocol was better. So even in, among the, you know, the quote unquote, you know, evidence-based crowd, you tend to get these kind of binary answers to complex questions. So when I ask people to think of things in this graded hierarchical context specific way, I know that's, fighting an uphill battle, but it's important. Yeah, it's funny because I was going to ask, a, or ask a, a question, but because of that, I'm going to just revert back to something here. On page 15, just you spoke about this in that, like, everyone wants these black and white answers. So, like, you're like, here, here are some examples of black and white questions that ignore context. Are squats the best exercise? Are leg press for wimpy men that are scared to squat? Is 5 by 5 better than 8 by 3 Is volume better? Is twice a week training enough? Uh, will everyday training cause me to overtrain? And then you were, you know, your type of thing was like, uh, you know, instead of black and white, you were like some examples of the type of critical thinking that I'm going to teach you in this book would be what is unique about the barbell squat that makes it worthy inclusion in training program? What are the limitations? When is the leg press appropriate? What sets and rest patterns uh, for an exercise are appropriate for exercise for me and when? Uh, how is adding sets of volume going to affect progress? What is the best uh, way for me to split training volume for me over the training week? So again, and I, I heard you say this too on Danny Lennon's podcast where somebody was like, you know, carbs make you fat or insulin. And then you, you said, instead of answering that, you'd be like, well, explain to me what your understanding of insulin is and where did you get that from? And so I completely appreciate yeah, this battle that you're having uh, in the industry. You're not alone. You're not alone. I'm in it with you. <laughs> Good man, good man. Um, just finishing off though with Vith, really, really good uh, kind of summary of it is on page 52 in your book. Um, so you're telling me, I really am looking at the book here. I'm not just... I know it. <laughs> I know it. Uh, 
you have a volume of that we spoke about that sort of guideline of 40 to 70 reps intensity between a 1 and 15 uh, 1 to 15 reps which is generally about 60 percent and above you see some i've seen some other ones where it's like 1 to 12 which is 70 percent and above but what i really liked about your intensity was that if strength is your goal you know about two-thirds of your volume should be in that one to six and then the the last quarter should be um in that kind of higher rep bracket like six to twelve and above and then it kind of flip-flops around for hypertrophy and then frequency then is that two to three times a week so that's a really really nice sort of snapshot of the summary of that chapter finally eric just want to ask a uh, question too you mentioned a very important thing in this chapter two important things one is the consideration of warm-up sets so a question that i have for you is when, when should we start counting our repetitions in terms of intensity and then second of all you speak about overlap between movements which i thought was a very interesting part and i, I love the way you actually displayed it in the book you know you, you were kind of showing some examples and you were like you know we're, we're slightly shy of 40 reps here in this session for this muscle group but don't worry you're basically hitting another two times through these very similar movements throughout the week so so maybe just speak about warm-up sets when do you think we should start counting in terms of intensity and uh, uh, overlap yeah, that, that's that's always the tough ones. You know, the the places where I don't give clear quantitative recommendations is where I think there is more context than there is answers. You know, it's like there's more exceptions to, than there are rules, um, because what overlaps is going to be different for two different people. You know, like if you've got somebody with really long arms and they're doing bench press, mm. they're probably going to get a whole lot of tricep out of that because they have to get that whole range of motion going. Or someone else might be taking, say, a wide grip and a short arms, you know, they, they might be getting much more even distribution of that volume. And, and that's, that's a little bit speculative. I'm not even sure it's that simple. Um, so how the exercise is performed, the limb lengths involved, um, the experience of the lifter, uh, you know, their prior exercise history, all of those things are going to determine, you know, what, what of that volume is quote unquote, like counted for different body parts. Um, you know, so it's, it's a tough thing to say. I, 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 I basically just explained if you look at the, the programs, how I counted the volume, uh, and then I got more nuanced for bodybuilders and powerlifters. You know, for powerlifters, I just basically said, you know, you got your upper body push, you got your upper body pull, and you got lower body. And, you know, I, I kind of count deadlifts as crossing over into both back and legs. Mm. I, I do some other things like that. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I think people just don't understand how muscles aren't built into these nice little categories like bodybuilders love to think they are. I mean, a front squat is some of the hardest back work I've done, but we think of that as a quad exercise, yeah. you know, just trying to keep that front rack position as an example. Um, and then how much does it count if it's an isometric contraction the whole time? You're not moving through a full, you know, eccentric, concentric dynamic action. Now it's, it's very tough to say, and I'm not sure one could provide useful, um, you know, quantitative answers to that. So yeah, I think to answer your question about um, what counts for what, you can broadly base it on, you know, the primary muscles and primary movers and the synergists, but just be aware that a lot of the times there's going to be overlap that you may not expect it. Um, and then to answer your question about warm-up sets, um, you know, you could do something as simple as just saying, I'm going to count anything over 60% because that's the, the quote unquote threshold, which is probably not actually a threshold mm. uh, for, for muscle growth. But then you think about it, if you do a single at 60%, that's not the same as taking a you know, a 60% set to failure. Yeah. And e even counting repetitions, you can get into some trouble. And it may be that it, it might be better just to count sets or hard sets. You know, this is something that uh, Greg Knuckles talked about in an article uh, he wrote. 
Um, because if you think about it, if you're using a heavier load, let's say you're doing a set of six compared to a set of 12, you're going to be using a heavier load. The bar is going to be moving slower because of that. Uh, and if you're doing, say, a 6RM versus a 12RM, uh, that 6RM is you know, going to be 80 to 85, 87% of your 1RM, depending on you know, how good you are at reps. You're probably going to get activation much earlier of everything. You're going to get those high threshold motor units coming into play much earlier in that set, and they're going to get a training effect from the start, right? Mm -hmm. However, if you're doing a 12RM, we're talking 70%, it may not be until the last six reps anyway where you're starting to get a full training effect on all of those fibers as it's quite light at the start. So is that really saying that you got 12 reps of volume versus your six reps of volume there? And you can kind of encapsulate that if you look at, say, volume load. But really, it, it's, it's, it, that, that, that's a tough one to say, too, because the, the load you use on an exercise is going to be dependent on a lot of other factors as well. You could look at it as relative volume load, like percentage 1RM times sets times reps and get kind of arbitrary units, uh, which is a good way to match volume in a training study, but it's actually quite difficult to decide what volume counts. And I would say that if you did, you know, two sets of 12 RM versus one set of, uh, sorry, two sets of 6 RM versus one set of 12 RM, there would be more stimulation and more of a stress from doing, you know, two sets at 6 RM because it's heavier, right, mm -hmm. uh, than, than one set of 12. So e even then, uh, there are some definite gray zones, which is why I try to emphasize to people in this in, in the book that hey, if you're you know getting 35 reps in a session in a session, and you're like oh my god I need 40, it's like chill out you know because this this is all semi-educated guesswork at best anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I tend to do as a coach, and this may answer your question in more more practical terms, is that I only count working sets, and then I define what should your warm-ups look like, make sure the person isn't either under warming up or overwhelming up. And then I know that at least for my clients, I have an idea of what relative amounts of volume are. They're low for someone, moderate or high, where they were. And I don't count the warm-up because it's always going to be a similar pattern for, for all of my athletes. You know? would, you, would you use RPE maybe? like So you could say like anything below 6 RPE really isn't a working set or, or something. Just use, I'm just trying to out there arbitrarily. Like say if, you're, if, you're, if your working sets were six to eight reps yeah and uh you know you were like you were still maybe warming up and then you say right this is gonna be my first working set and then you hit it and you're like oh geez i could have got another four or five reps there is that was that really a working set now or you you could do it that way and that would work within certain contexts but if you think about it let's say a six rpe is you could have done four more reps are you really saying a single at you know 85 percent shouldn't count what if you just come in there, you're doing singles at 85%, you're just doing like heavy, you know, kind of like heavy technique work. So Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah you know, so the, you can almost always find an exception it's, to it's it. And I wish there was a really nice way. I, probably the, the easiest and the most elegant way would be just to count working sets within different bands of ranges. But right. then you then you're actually, and a lot of people do that. Like Olympic lifters are off, often will do that. They'll count 90% work different than 80% work different than 70 Work. Kind of like per, have, per Lipton's chart sort of volumes or yeah, I'm working. Yeah, very, very similar, right? So they use those bands. And the only reason I didn't do something like that is we just don't have the empirical data on that, yeah. you know? Um, I, I could make some construct, but I wouldn't have a whole lot of confidence in it. Cool, cool. All right, so the, the, the next uh, level of the pyramid then was obviously progressive overload, which, again, is a critical component to training. Um, and I really liked how for bodybuilding, 
you know, because obviously for a strength-based athlete, there is a way more sort of objective way to know if you've gotten stronger or if your training is working in terms of overload, which is like, did I lift more in the next competition? But for bodybuilding, it, you know, it, again, it's uh, it's not as obvious. So you were saying, you know, there's there, obviously there's you could do similar things in bodybuilding training. Like uh, you, you could test your maxes if you wanted to, to see if you're getting stronger. Because again, if you're getting stronger, that means you can build more muscle or more potential to build more muscle because you can innervate more motor units, etc., etc. But you were talking about, you know, picking sort of like, you know, 6RM um, in a certain movement and is that lift going up? And So maybe just speak about progression and, and uh, progressive overload and maybe also break it down into like more for the novice, intermediate and then advanced person and into sort of the two categories of the strength athlete and then the bodybuilder. Right. So the... Uh this level of the pyramid is really where that kind of comment I made earlier about periodization comes into play. Mm. And that's simply just trying to hammer away and do more load every time you train. If just kind of only using the first two levels of the pyramid, like let's say you, you do have that, that setup where you're always in the 40 to 70 range using the right intensity recommendations, the right uh, frequency, the right volume. Uh, but progression is just a matter of trying harder each time, you know, um, that only gets you so far. And, um, it doesn't allow much management of fatigue once you start to get to the limit loads and you stop having those so clearly linear, uh, you know, jumps in strength. And that's when you start having to figure out, okay, do I, how do I do more, more volume? And if I do more volume, how will that affect me in the next coming days? Okay. So how do I have, you know, which day should be light, which week should be light, all that stuff. So the, the, uh, the progression, yeah, it does come down to, to how do you test progress, right? Because if you can't measure it, then you can't really make, you know, you don't know if you're getting better. Mm -hmm. And I use a similar method for both bodybuilders and powerlifters in a very simple sense in that I am testing performance. Um, so for the bodybuilder, even though their goal is not necessarily to be stronger, it's more of a test to know that we did in fact induce progressive overload. Yeah. And if we have them within a certain model, if they're constrained to, I'm using this handful of compound movements this slightly larger hand, handful of secondary lifts or isolation movements or machine movements that I'm using as my methods to stimulate my muscle. And if I'm using consistent form and if I'm testing my, uh, you know, my strength in a more appropriate rep range that I use normally, and that's gone up, at least I know that I've supplied progressive overload. Yeah. And if, you know, that, that, that's the best proxy we have. Now for a novice, you don't have to worry about testing too much. Honestly, if you just get in there and, and train and try to take that, that approach that I kind of mentioned at first, just going up and weight linearly, which I showed some logical ways to do, you're going to make great progress. But once you've been in the gym six months, a year, two years, uh, that's when the route might have to become a little more complex just to deal with, uh, you know, managing the fatigue that you're inducing. So for an intermediate uh, or an advanced bodybuilder, I do make the argument that I think, uh, you know, testing strength in that manner with, you know, what the internet calls an AMRAP, as many reps as possible, mm. uh, is a good way to do it. And there are ways to even manage the fatigue with that. You know, if you're good with that RPE scale, like you brought up, you can go to a nine, not go to failure, not, you know, get a lower, lower risk of injury and just pretend you got that last rep and then derive an estimated one RM to set up your next block. And, you know, I have gotten a little bit of critique for, for that from some circles where they think, some people will make the argument that the relationship between hypertrophy and strength is not very strong. Um, and that, that's an interesting area. And we don't have a whole lot of data there, but the data that we do have would suggest that, you know, for a novice, it might be pretty damn low, like only 20% uh, of, of strength is explained by your hypertrophy, but that at a higher level, 
Um, you know, there's a cool study by Appleby over two years where they look at changes in lean mass and relate it to strength over a two-year period, and that correlation starts to get a lot stronger, which makes sense when you're not kind of making those rapid, you know, neurological adaptations that you make early as a lifter. Uh, then, you know, you've got to kind of change the machinery uh, a bit and then keep recruiting it as you have been in an effective way. Uh, so I think there's still, in my opinion, a strong rationale uh, for measuring performance. It's kind of basically going, look, I've put all of the ingredients that should make this meal into the oven. I'm just going to have to hope that what comes out is that meal because we can't effectively, you know, put our head in the oven and, and see how it's cooking, you know, if you will. So, so and I, I love that. Yeah, it's a, that was the kind of point I wanted to get across that for bodybuilding, you were actually using a performance indicator to show progressive overload, which I thought was very good. Um, also, too, another thing that I've started to utilize a lot lately is wider rep brackets. And I love the way you actually demonstrated this, uh, you know, particularly for um, the smaller muscle groups you're talking about, like a bicep curl, you're like, you know, if, if you were using multiple sets and you couldn't get between like a small rep bracket, like it's okay. Like you were kind of like giving permission. You were really like, it's okay to like have a wider rep bracket. Like I remember one time, because everyone, like the rep brackets are all the same. It's all like, it's all, uh, you know, six to eight, eight to 10, 10 to 12, 12 to 15. I like to screw people and go, you're doing four sets of nine to 11. Just to, yeah. just, just to screw people. I was, I want to know where, where the rule against 12 to 14 came from. Like yeah. you make these, they're all two rep jumps and then you get there and it's like, it's gotta be 12 to 15. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you go 15 to 20 then you go to five. So you go all twos and then sometimes you can do eight to 12, you know, they'll allow a four one, but man, it goes, goes to that. three and then five. 16, yeah. 16, 17, 18, 19 are just like, these bastards, I just forgot about them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, that's absolutely brilliant stuff. Uh, um, Moving on then to the uh, the next level, which is exercise selection, which is an, which is a, a topic I, I, I really like and I loved uh, in Greg Knuckles' um, books. It, it was it was either the art or the science of lifting where he just he so eloquently put he was like if you are not a strength athlete in terms of a body or in terms of a powerlifter and Olympic lifter, and someone says to you you have to do X exercise, he's like they are lying. You, there is no like you do not have to do uh, there's no exercise that anyone ever has to do unless it is your sport and and you know aka your powerlifter or an lifter and pretty much you were similar too in in uh, your chapter and you know you spoke about the, the nuances of why someone might pick a certain exercise over another you know if somebody needed more work on their anterior thigh in terms of their squat performance or etc etc or lever lengths and all that so may, i'll let you get into that so maybe just speak about exercise selection yeah, I, I have it easy as a bodybuilding coach and a powerlifting coach. For, okay. for, so for powerlifting, you pretty much know the bulk of your training is going to be for the big three. And then for bodybuilding, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it doesn't even matter as much. <laughs> That's <laughs> as what I was saying earlier on. Like body, I, I, all say to my, say, I, I all say to my students, I'm like, hypertrophy is dumb. And I remember one day uh, <laughs> uh, a, a girl in the class thought I, th thought I meant that hypertrophy training is not good. And I was like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I mean to train for hypertrophy. It's such a dumb quality. It's like it's just like destroy me and feed me. Whereas like when it gets into like strength and power and, and like linear speed or multi-layer speed, I was like, now you need to be a lot more specific about what you do in your training. Yeah, no, in many ways you're right. Like, um, sure, a a good example is that an athlete may not be training with a hip thrust or a weighted sled run. That's never going to happen in their sport. However, there is a difference between horizontal and vertical loading, mm. right? 
when, when you're talking about, you know, some of the looking at vector-based training. Um, you know, this is just stuff that I kind of learned just by being around a good strength conditioning department because all of my stuff is around, you know, bodybuilding and powerlifting. So for bodybuilding, it's just simply finding a way to put stimulus on all muscle groups, basically. And for powerlifting, it's just a question of when are the big three the best tool for the job and when might they not be, uh, which isn't that often in my opinion. But, but I mean, the way I look at it for, you know, powerlifting is that all of the links in the chain that lead to a, a strong squat, strong bench, or a strong deadlift are trained by the squat that mentioned the deadlift. However, they're not always the fastest way from point A to point B. Right. Mm -hmm. So for probably the easiest example, which I like to use is saying that your grip strength is what's holding back your deadlift. You know, you lose it at the top and you dump it when you're close to one RM and it would be pretty foolish to double your volume on, on one RM deadlifts and be uber specific to try to get your grip strength stronger when you could simply do like single arm hangs and not load your spine credit to Brett Contreras for that, that one. Um, or what I often do is just have a bar right at lockout and someone just pulls it out and they hold for time. So they're working on 10 to 20 second holds with 95 to 110% of their one RM progressed over time. And that fixes grip so quickly. Mm -hmm. And with such a fraction of fatigue compared to doing, you know, heavy deadlifts more. Right. So that's an easy example where you can see that it's not just only about the big three, that there are some times uh, where a different lift than the big three is actually going to be faster than supplying it. Um, and then from bodybuilding, you kind of have to look at it and go, okay, we can accept that maybe those big heavy compound lifts like your squats, your RDLs, your front squats, your overhead press, your bench, probably get you the most bang for your buck. They're the most efficient. Yeah. But they also have an energy cost. You know, if I ask someone to do, you know, five by five on squats, and this is a bodybuilder, uh, at a nine RPE on their last set, that would be a very hard training session. That alone might take them... 30 to 40 minutes, depending on how strong they were. However, if I ask them to do three by five and then say, okay, now do some supplementary work, they could probably do antagonist paired sets and get through three sets of, of leg extensions and three sets of hamstring curls. So they've basically just done an additional six sets uh, in the time that it would have taken them to do two sets of squats. So they might have gained, you know, 30 reps for both their quads and their hamstrings in the time it would have taken them to get 10 on squats, which would have been, you know, partially counted for hamstrings and, and quads each, and of course, glutes and a back and stuff like that. So you have to think not only about the, just the raw comparison, but also the, the opportunity cost, the energy cost, and really how, what do you have left after you put all this time and energy into killing yourself? It's very difficult to do a high volume powerlifting program because of the movement complexity, the high intensity, and the overall body gets generated by compound lifts. So it makes more sense for a bodybuilder whose goal is really just to figure out a way to stimulate muscle to use more supplementary work. Mm. So it's almost just kind of a logical path you can trail down if you think about the consequences of taking a an uber kind of like compound biased approach or even compound free weight biased approach. Even though if you just looked at it rep per rep, yeah, if you did all your work on heavy compound movements at 100% of 1RM and get, you know, 70 reps per session at 100% of 1RM, that would be the highest stimulus possible. But we want a sustainable possible stimulus, you know, not just murder yourself. You know, not, not, people treat training sometimes like they're only going to lift weights once, 
You know, like what's the best possible thing I can do on Thursday? Because I'm never going to train again. So I've got to make it as hard as possible and as best as possible and not think about the fact that it's a, you know, a continuous goal and that hypertrophy to the level they want won't be achieved until they've been training for decades. So great stuff. Just a question I really wanted to get your thought on too. You address this in the book, and I'm trying to find it, but I'm 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 gonna uh, what's the word? I, I'm gonna like not necessarily paraphrase. Quote. Yeah, paraphrase. That's the exact word I want. I was gonna, I was gonna say not exactly quote a paraphrase. Just sit down my mind. But you'll often uh, I, I suppose not so much a debate anymore. But there used to be this comment, this discussion about hypertrophy, and I suppose because of Schoenfeld's work now, showing that you know those three main mechanisms of mechanical stress. Sorry, me- mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and overall muscle damage seems to be the, the main mechanism of hypertrophy. But like this kind of idea that, well, like you always get to people saying, well, what's better, you know, 10 by 3 or 3 by 10, and they're both 30, 30 reps, but the actual total volume be different because you lift more 10 by 3. So, you know, if you equated the volume the same, the total volume lifted, well, what's better, you know, heavier reps done for more sets or the, the higher reps done for, you know, less sets, but the total volume sort of saying, what's going to induce better hypertrophy? And I think you, you demonstrated that in your book <coughs> somewhere where, uh, and if I'm right, pretty much the hypertrophy um, benefit of both groups was, was pretty much the same. But the the heavier group got stronger because they got more neural adaptations, which is obvious. And they also had more achy bodies, whereas the other people with higher reps, right, they got the same at the muscle mass, weren't as strong, but they spent way less time in the gym and they didn't complain about achy joints. So you were kind of saying, like, it just really depends on the, on the person's goal to in context and would you agree then that for optimal hypertrophy, you know, it is a combination of the two, like the two together? Yeah, optimal hypertrophy is, is about just providing an environment for progressive overload to take place while managing fatigue, you know, and you, that could be said of almost anything, but you're exactly right. There's been more studies than just the one that, that Schoenfeld did where I think most people became aware uh, that this, this match volume approach is heavy enough happened. Um, there's a study even earlier that was done in 2002 by Campos where they had, you know, a moderate rep range group, a, uh, a heavy rep range group, and this is RMs, so we're talking, I, I want to say it was like 9 to 11, uh, 3 to 5, and then a high one, a high rep one as well. And interestingly enough, even though they, they matched volume, the high rep group didn't grow as well. Mm. Um, and so, so it gives the impression that there probably is some, you know, a point at where you do have to consider uh, the, the load. And if you can think about it, if you were to do a 30 or 40 rep set, you know, it's going to take 20 to 30 reps before you're actually, uh, you know, getting an effective training stimulus on, on all the fibers, uh, which is, you know, I mentioned that before, but yeah, so it's kind of a, a sweet spot. You don't want to go too high in reps. You don't want to go too low in reps because if you were to take an approach that was exclusive to one or the other, you'd run into logistical problems. If you wanted to be the guy who only trained three to five RM, kind of took that, you know, power builder exclusive approach, you're going to have a tough time not being in the gym for four hours, you know, to achieve the appropriate volume. And you're going to have a tough time not getting soft tissue injuries or just getting mental burnout. Um, so yeah, you run into issues with, uh, increasing injury risk. And we actually have a decent, it's a few studies now that show that powerlifting has a higher injury risk than bodybuilding does, or probably a more correct uh, interpretation of that study is that powerlifters report higher frequencies of injury than bodybuilders. Um, and, you know, so that's not something that's going to help you grow, you know, if you're getting hurt more often. Yeah. Uh, and then on the flip side of it, if you're constantly, there's another good study by Schoenfeld. I, you know, drew a lot on his work. That's kind of the focus of his studies. 
you know, he had one where he compared a 25 to 35 RM group to an 8 to 12 RM group. Yeah. And like you'd expect, the, the heavier group got stronger, a lighter group got more muscular endurance, but they matched the total number of sets and they had similar amount of growth. You know, but you could also look at it like, hey, the group that did, you know, three sets of 25 to 35 did twice as many reps and probably three times the volume, volume load, or maybe two times the volume load and three times the number of reps and only got the same amount of growth. Mm. So, and if you've ever done a 25 to 35 rep set to failure, that is absolutely freaking brutal. You know, that, that's the type of thing that would make heavy making multiple trips to the bathroom and throwing up, you know, especially if you're talking about a compound lift. And I have done that, you know, back when I didn't really know the mechanisms that I was doing, I used to think Widowmakers are good, you know, 20 rep sets to, to damn near failure on squats because they're, they're hard. And, you know, I, if you think about it, you're supposed to take, what, a two-minute rest break, you know, if you're on traditional bodybuilder at most. And that's what I thought I was supposed to do. But I couldn't because I'd have to go to the bathroom and literally puke sometimes. And I would it'd be like 10-minute rest between sets because I'm sitting in the bathroom trying to catch my my breath looking pale as a ghost. So the metabolic cost is not worth it on one end. And then the, the structural cost is not worth it on the other end. So yeah. it makes sense to be able to blend of both and train in the middle most of the time. Yeah, I actually, I found it here on page, on page 43 that, that the 3RM and a 10RM group Schoenfeld again. And the other Schoenfeld yeah. ones above it too, the 20, yeah, 20 to 35 and the 8 to 12RM group, they, they achieve the same level of muscle growth. But then of course you put in that the, the 20 to 35 had to do more have to do more effective sets or more effective reps. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. The, the next uh, part of the pyramid, the last two, and it was funny, very interesting too, the rest periods, because I always felt rest periods was one area that no one really spoke about or there seemed mm. to be very little attention on it. And stuff did come out lately that, oh, actually longer rest periods seem to be just as effective, you know, within reason than the shorter ones. And I suppose, like, when we sit back and think about it logically, and I say this to students too, I'm like, if you're taking too short a rest period, how might that be detrimental? And it's because you're accumulating fatigue too much, and then your overall training volume might might suffer because of it. So maybe just touch into to, to rest periods and the considerations around this. Yeah, the rest period thing. I, well, it all came, the original recommendation to train, uh, you know, for hypertrophy was to take rest periods of 30 to 60 seconds. Yeah. Uh, you know, and this is based off of data where... Uh, they're looking at hormonal markers, which, you know, back in the 80s and even into the late 90s uh, were thought because of correlational data, not causational data, uh, to be the cause of muscle growth, mm. you know, acute changes in, in hormones. And now, you know, approaching 2020, we have a pretty solid understanding of why growth hormone goes up and more so that it's a correlative, like the metabolic cost of training, yeah. you know, along with, you know, lactate and also just the total stress along with cortisol that these hormones are going up just because you did a lot. You, know, you could run 400-meter sprints and have a similar growth, response, growth yeah. hormone response, but that wouldn't mean uh, you're getting the same effect of 3x10 uh, you know, on squats. So they were kind of programming or making recommendations for programming based on, um, I'd say, what, what, what one researcher wrote as a title, Hormonal Ghosts, Chasing Hormonal Ghosts. That's a good paper. <laughs> uh, and the once you start to then get this better understanding, you know, based on that Schoenfeld model that you put forward and, and the meta-analyses meta that have come out now where we see this pretty strong relationship uh, between volume and the need for progressive overload, you start to understand, hold on, if I'm using a rest interval that forces me to drop my load or decrease the number of reps I can perform, 
I'm basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. It doesn't mean you'd never have short rest intervals. It just means that you have to think about the context. So, for example, let's say you're in the gym and you think it closes at 10 p.m. and they, they announce it on, on, on the uh, loudspeaker they're closing early tonight at 9 p.m. And you're like, oh, shit, I forgot today it was Saturday, you know, and you've only got 30 minutes to finish your workout. Well, we know based on the pyramid that the volume it, the volume is, is lower on the pyramid than, than, than your, your rest interval. So you could flip it on its head and say, hold on, I've got 10 sets to do, and I've got 30 minutes. I'm going to have to reduce my rest period to roughly two minutes. I know that might cost me a rep or five kilos here or there, but for me to actually complete my workout, I need to do what I need to do. So, I mean, you have to think about the context. And then if you're constantly in a position where you have to cut your rest interval short to achieve your volume, well, then maybe you need to go back to the drawing board and think about a different frequency of training or a different volume uh, per session or a different exercise selection. Um, so it can you know, be used as an indicator that way as well. But yeah, basically, um, if we do understand that performance creates adaptation rather than chasing some kind of notion of, of hormonal ch you know, changes within an hour post-workout, uh, then we understand that, okay, if we're doing things that negatively affect our performance, that probably doesn't make sense. Yeah, I had this discussion actually with my students as well last week, and I'm currently reading um, Meg and Mike Stone's uh, and William Sands' textbook, the, the Principles and Practice of Resistance Training, and they actually spoke about that in one of their chapters, that the idea that, you know, the hormone response hypertrophy was this big idea, and then they said, well, it seems to be disproven that it is more down to actually the, the you know, the overall damage into the muscle and more of the mechanical, uh, mechanical uh, um, tension. And, and metabolic stress to a certain fact, but not so much these hormonal uh, factors that you said were more correlation rather than causation. To give the example of the bicep curl, they're like, if you went in and did a lot of bicep curls, the actual hormone release is quite small, but your biceps will grow because of the damage done to them. And then another example is to sprinters, they release a lot of growth hormone or, or can give a lot of lactate, but they, again, they don't like, and while they do look jacked, they look jacked because they also lift weights. It's not, yeah, it's not exactly. Just, it's not just from the sprinting. But like, you know, right, there, there will be a rift, but they won't be huge because of the, uh, there isn't enough mechanical uh, stress going through their through their systems. And it was funny because then a student asked a great question. He's like, but in sprinting, like, you know, potentially 10 times body weight go through your body. So like there's 200 pounds going through the body. But I was like, yeah, but when you're upright sprinting in, in, in max velocity, that load is being distributed through your elastic tissues into your tendons. It isn't actually going through the, uh, the neuromuscular component and in strength training. So, and also the range of the motion are different. Like the, you don't want your joints to like overly bend when you're in top end speed. You want them to stay stiff so you can transfer that elastic energy back into the ground. Whereas when you're doing a heavy squat, your muscles are actually now taking that load and you're causing damage. There's a concentric, eccentric component, whereas in max sprinting, it's isometric and it distributes that load into your tendon. So it was a really great discussion around this because mm. he was really off that, oh, but do you not need like, you know, the hormone release and all that? I was like, listen, there is, there is a bit of that, but it seems to come down more to, again, total volume done. Yeah, and it, it, you could even make an argument that if you look at like long-term hormonal changes, like if you're looking at actual you know, two years later, resting concentrations and say, not just testosterone cortisol, but maybe like your testosterone cortisol ratio yeah. and getting an idea of kind of, oh, maybe your total net balance, which is kind of reflecting, you know, muscle protein turnover, then maybe you could make an argument. But even then, it's, it's like we have so much better methods for assessing progress, like yeah. actual progress, you know. <laughs> so. Actually, that's really good. Uh, and the final part, and probably... The, the favorite part 
was tempo. And you're probably like myself in terms of a lot of people ask about tempo. And again, um, and I keep saying students, I teach at a personal training college. So like, you know, a lot of the young lads come in and they were particularly the last group I just had, they were saying, oh, we trained with a bodybuilder and everything was tempo, three down, three up. And they're like, is tempo the key? Is tempo the key? And I'm just like, you got to get this book and read it. It'll, it'll help out. <laughs> so touch on tempo. Yeah, so basically the um, the tempo conversation comes from one where there's a focus under time under tension, which is not factually wrong. Obviously, the, mm. the time spent under tension is really important, but the tempo almost starts to focus on the time component more than the magnitude of the tension itself, yeah. right? So, and it's the same kind of thing like rest interval. People will start to slow down their repetition speed to the point where they have to reduce their load. And if you were to actually put them on a force plate and measure the total, the closest thing we have as, an, as a representative of, of time under tension and magnitude of tension would be impulse, which is the, the area under the force curve. So, you know, force is, um, you know, mass times acceleration. And then how much time spent producing force, the area under that, if you were to look at a graph, that would be the total impulse, which you would think, uh, and, and actually does, match muscle force output. And the total amount of force that your muscles are putting out is probably the closest thing we have to knowing the total stimulus if you want to talk about it from a very kind of kinetic standpoint. Um, so to, to just focus on that time point and to lower that graph to the point where the area reduce, reduces drastically because you're having to lift much lower weights uh, can sometimes throw the baby out of the bathwater again. Mm -hmm. And they've, they've done a few studies on this where they examine it. Um, and, you know, probably roughly in the range where you know, you're, you're spending, you know, one to, you know, actually even keep it more simple. If you were putting, you know, a max contractile effort into the concentric and just keeping some measure of muscular control on the eccentric, you're probably good to go. Um, and, and I think there are, there, there's not a, a ton of data directly looking at outcomes, but there is data looking at those kinetic changes. Um, and there is a recent meta-analysis that came out that basically found that uh, slow training doesn't provide any advantage, and the vast majority of studies on, on admittedly super slow training compared to more normal tempos shows a disadvantage of going too slow. And of course, in these cases, time under tension is way higher in the super slow group. However, the magnitude of the tension is also much lower. Yeah. Um, now, with all that said, there was actually a recent study, I think it literally came out in the last couple of weeks, where they looked at a, a one-second eccentric versus a four-second eccentric and the one-second eccentric uh, actually did worse. And if you think about it at this point, to do a true one-second eccentric, can you really keep it under muscular control? I mean, if you think about a tall guy doing a squat, that's basically dive bombing. Yeah. You know? So I, I think it actually kind of goes to my point. It, it's, it's not about don't – maybe I shouldn't have said don't worry about tempo at all. Yeah. It's really you just need to make sure that it's you doing the work rather than gravity on the eccentric. And the concentric, well, there's only one way it's going to come up, and that's you doing the work anyway. So. Well, I, I don't think I don't think in your book that you said tempo doesn't matter because it's it's obviously it made its way within the book. It's in the hierarchy, so it definitely has sure. to matter. I just again, you just said, listen, in terms of the hierarchy, this is not more important than what's come before, particularly when we're talking about volumes and intensity and frequency, uh, and and the other components that make up the pyramid. Um, so as you said, it definitely there, there, it definitely has its place, but we also again. I've sent like your man, uh, Lauren Brannock from Guru, Guru Performance. Mm. He's like, uh, context, context, context. So, yeah. Um, no, it was absolutely brilliant stuff. 
And just another thing wrapping up, Eric, that I'd, I'd like to get your opinion on. Um, I know Mike Isatel talks about this idea of maximum recoverable volume. Um, and it's something I've played around with this year in that from reading um, Mike's book, The Scientific Principles of Strength Training, and also to give credit, Chad, Chad, Chad Wesley Smith and James Hoffman were authors, so i got to mention those guys. Uh, but in that book, he, you know, what really sparked the light of me in that was he was talking about this idea of fatigue management and then you get these people who overutilize it. So they're like, oh, I'm deloading today, bro. I'm deloading, bro. Like every day, was every week was a deload. He's like, you get people and they only like accumulate for maybe two weeks and then they deload the third week and there's no need to do it. And then it got it got this concept where I was like, like how can, like how to know then when to deload? Because you see most programs, the traditional is three on and one off and whether it's a step load or an undulating, but usually that fourth week is a low volume. Mm-hmm. Like, have you any sort of recommendation or have you thought about any ideas? So I'll just tell you what I done. What I done was like, I, I was like, right, I'm going to keep loading until my performance starts to decay until I can't start meeting my numbers. And I actually got to five weeks of heavy training before then. I was like, right, I got to back off here. So in, and so I'm basically I'm more auto-regulated rather than saying, right, here's my five-week training and I'm going to do four on one off or here's four weeks of three on one off. So my question is in terms of just like, reaching your MRV or this concept of max recovery volume, which essentially what Mike says is it's the most amount of training that you can perform and benefit from without overtraining. Um, like, have you done anything to sort of maybe optimize that a bit better rather than say, here's a cookie cutter tree on one off kind of idea? Well, I, I think I like that Mike is trying to basically find that Goldilocks zone. Yeah. Uh, I like that he gives a, a quantitative answer to, to at what point are you not recovering from the volume you have? However, I'm not with them on that final leap of saying, once you found your MRV, we know that is what's going to get that optimal yeah. performance change. And I think that that's, that's an important leap because it may be that the amount of volume you do, you know, say 20% of arbitrary units before you actually see a performance decline uh, on a week-to-week, you know, microcycle, micro, microcycle basis mm. is just as effective, uh, but doesn't have the cost of, of fatigue. You know, I, I don't know for sure. Um, and I don't think, and I think MRV sometimes represents that relationship less like a parabola, like most biological variables are in like a bell curve. Yeah. Uh, and, and more almost like the steep drop off, off the cliff, you know, that if you, you go past MRV, if you don't reach it, then you're, you're not seeing the, the full amount of gains or, or it, all of a sudden that is the point at which, uh, you're you're not getting maximal adaptation. So, I not to plug someone else's podcast on your podcast, but I, we had a big debate with myself, Wayne Norton, and Mike Israel and Greg Knuckles talking about this specific concept on uh, Jeff Nippert's mm. uh, Ice Cream for PRs podcast, where we went into a lot of depth. If your listeners want to dive in, um, but essentially, you know, for the most part, I definitely agree with with Mike Israel, and I, I like what he's attempting to do. I just am not quite as comfortable. Uh, with, and it's nice. It's always nice when you can have an objective measure to yeah, say this is yeah. the point at which you should not do more. And I think it's attractive for that reason, but I'm I'm not necessarily convinced uh, that that would result in, in better progress. You know, there's not a whole lot of data on overreaching. You know, and it's what differentiates between non-functional overreaching and functional overreaching. You only find out afterwards. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so so I that that's that's one of those ones where. Mine, the typical, that, that's why I provided those relatively quantitative ranges for volume. Because I basically say, hey, you know, two to three times a week, do 40 to 70 reps. And then I show examples of how to periodize that in, in, in models 
and then, you know, basically saying, right, you need some way to manage fatigue. And then if that didn't result in progress, you know, measurable progress, then maybe you, that's when you need to do more volume. So it's more of, it's not as immediate. It's not as, as elegant. And then it tells you exactly how much to do each time, but it, it is retrospective. In, in that you would only increase your volume if after your deload and your test and after your overreaching phase, you didn't see an improvement in, in, uh, in performance. And that's basically how I work with my athletes. So I give them an eight-week block, and if things didn't go well, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't some other variable, the next eight-week block or six-week or 12-week block or what have you, the volume is probably going to go up on a list that didn't cooperate. And so just in terms then of, let's say, fatigue management, like, do you prescribe a deload week still, or are you basically auto-regulating that? Um, and then I suppose the, the other just kind of point I want to make there is, is that, like, I don't know if you've seen any John Kiley's work on, like, periodization programming and Kiley's sort of things that, listen, the, the, the human body is such a dynamic organism that there's going to be so many variables that interact with the human organism on a daily basis that are going to interrupt its adaptations to the training process and that are going to have these, you know, very sort of transient, sort of um, uh, transient. Um, what's the word I'm thinking about? Effects on performance. Exactly, a transient effects on performance and whatnot. So, uh, a kind of a second part of that then is, like, let's say I, I, I'm, let's say I have a great week of training, and the following week I go in, and I just for whatever reason. I can't hit my numbers. Maybe, maybe just I'm lacking a little bit of sleep. There's an exam going on, but I'm still training to a point where, like, I'm I'm eliciting some sort of response. Like, I'm accumulating some sort of fatigue. Like, am I still getting enough benefit from that training? Because it's kind of it, what I'm basically is like, it's a training that I'm getting still enough to adapt, even though it might be not as good quality as week four, because it's just that's currently where my system is at. It doesn't necessarily mean that oh, you you are you have to deload like. It doesn't mean that your training's worthless now because you can't compete last week. This is just where you right now can get to, and that's still fine once you don't like ravage your body with too much volume, like your pushing through. Is that making sense? That question? Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a couple pieces I want to address. There is that I is it John Kelly or John Kiley? I probably I, I call him. It's funny because I know John well. In Ireland, mm. we would all say John Kiley. But, but everyone, okay. everyone like, you know, American people and even like uh, France, I interviewed Franz Bosch and they all call him Keely. And I, I was like, John, is it Keely or Kylie? And John's like, John's just typical Irish. He's like, ah, it doesn't matter. You can call me whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> so he, does, he, does, he doesn't mind. Well, John, if you're listening, I want to pronounce it right. And I'm going to try Keely. And if it's wrong, then I'm sorry. But I, I absolutely love, he, he wrote probably one of the best critiques of periodization I've ever read in 2012. Great, yeah, I love uh, that paper. Love that paper, yeah, yeah, yeah tra tradition-led or or, or, uh, or evidence-based. I'm, I'm butchering the name a little bit, and I think he made those exact points there. And that uh, you're going to get a different response within athlete each time with the same training stimulus because there's so many variables you're managing. It's going to be different between individuals, uh, and you know, using these highly quantitative overall arching approaches is probably misguided and won't accurately represent the individual. So. Um, you know, these are all attempts at trying to get the individual a, a more prescriptive thing. That's the whole reason I'm studying auto-regulation for my PhD is saying, hey, you know, it's probably true that a, even if you're, let's say, have a 10% decrease in your ability to produce force today, if you record a 9 RPE for the same number of sets and reps as you did last week, even though you're 10% stronger, probably the stimulus is going to be pretty similar. Sure, the mechanical tension is going to be less, 
Um, but it's, it's probably going to be pretty similar. And, and more importantly, um, I don't want people to so focus on today's performance. You know, if, if it ends up, you know, you, like you said, you're going to have all these unexpected things that could affect your performance. And if you freak out about that too much, you can end up doing more harm than good by making assumptions about how your whole block of training is or isn't going, you know? Um, and you know, that, that's why I talked a little bit about like flexible periodization, you know, where you, and there's some been further studies on that. There's a flexible DUP study now, uh, where, you know, similar gains were gotten a group that decided when they wanted to do their, their different days of the week, uh, you know, di different difficulties of training versus one that had them pre-planned. So I think there's definitely value in just acknowledging the fact that you may not have it in you today and having a, a setup where you still might do uh, another one of the days of the week or a different portion of your volume. And I do sometimes program, especially for accessory work, uh, a list rather than do this on a specific day. Yeah. Uh, with my more advanced athletes who understand how to make those in-game calls and have the experience to uh, to know when to slot it in and, and, and understand things like, oh, I wouldn't do freaking close grip bench right before bench, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I'm sort of similar. I give some of my more advanced guys more leeway in terms. So something I've actually played around with too is is you utilizing HRV in terms that if, 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 if they, and also down to their subjective feeling because HRV doesn't tell the whole story. Sometimes you can meet a red and, like Joel James would even say this, is like you can still perform in a red, so it's just you don't want to perform in reds consistently, then you're fucked. Like, but like what I've done is kind of put down their their the, 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 the kind of volumes that we'd like to hit in green, and then if they're amber that day, like so like a simple example, squat five five is in green. If they're amber that day and they feel a little bit off, three sets of five in the squat. And if it's red and they feel really shitty, let's call it a day of recovery and come back and hit it the next day. So I've kind of mm -hmm. tied around that rather than, again, saying, like, right, week four is this definite D-low. Because, again, just going back to John's and the paper actually I have here for me, it, periodization paradigms of the 21st century, evidence-led or tradition-driven tradition by John Cotty. That's Yes, you're close. But, again, like, you know, because, again, we're such complex biological systems, you know, saying that, like, you know, we're going to D-load every four weeks, it just seems more logical to be more fluid with our approach in terms of training. Um, so that was great to get your thoughts on that. But one final thing, Eric, and then I'll, I'll let you go, and um, because I know your your partner is going to come home soon from her yoga class, and you want to spend the evening with her. So I, I really appreciate that. And you also, uh, just for the listeners, we were meant to do this even in my time yesterday. It's morning here, and I couldn't do it because I had I, the reason I couldn't do it was I had dinner with my family. So I was like, and they don't usually have me for dinner. So I was kind of mm, like, they're yeah. like, come on down, and I was like, okay. We both got our priorities in order. That's the good news. That's the good news. Yeah, and it's funny because I knew if I'd said to you it was dinner with family, you'd be like, "That's that's the priority." Because I've I heard a lot of you know, I know you're a very sort of holistic. It's all about like like training should add to your life rather than take away. I think probably like myself and a lot of people listening. There's times in our lives where like if we miss the session, our day was ruined. And as we get more older, and mature, we realize that you know what, this is supposed to be enhancing my life, not taking away from it. So, yeah, and I've had over over two thousand sessions. Maybe that one wasn't going to break my my gains. Exactly, you know? exactly. <laughs> but one final thing, and this is more something for my students that might listen to this, and this is a conversation we often have: is this idea of training to failure. And again, it's going to go back to, you know, if you train to failure all the time, your overall training volume is going to suffer in terms of either within that session or over the course of a training cycle. So. Just a, a few questions then, because I mean, the answer to that then is kind of obvious is that well, you shouldn't be like trained fader all the time or, or taking your first set to fader because your rest sets are going to suffer. But a question is, 
I often get that as well. What if I'm doing like four sets and then the fifth set I go to failure? Like, what, what, what about that then? You know, is that really going to suffer? And then also we need to ask the question, well, what are we going to failure on? Is it a big compound movement or well, is it like more of a supplementary movement where it's dumbbells and the load's lighter? And then is it isolation or body weight? And I'm just going to say something and I'd like to get your thoughts on it. I generally recommend for the big compound movements to always keep that like two or three clean technical reps in the tank. And then with dumbbell work then, so if you're looking at a program, your A lifts is your big compound, will leave two or three in the tank. Then into your like B, B section of your dumbbell accessory work or kettlebell, I also say leave about one, two clean reps in the tank. And then when it comes to like body weight or isolation stuff, you can go balls out basically, but do that maybe on the last set so you can keep the volume up as well. So just like to get your thoughts maybe on that. I'd say, you know, 90%, 90% I pretty much echo and agree. I think there is some more nuance to it when you're, say, working with a power lifter or if you're doing certain periodization blocks with a bodybuilder. Like, mm -hmm. I, what I like to do is I'll give a, um, you know, a heavy compound or, or main lift RPE range and then, like, an accessory work range. So, for example, if the person's, let's just use a power lifter as an easy example. I might tell them in a, a block earlier in their macro cycle, I want all your RPE sets to fall within between a six to an eight on your bench squat deadlift, right? We're developing good technical form, and we don't want to. We're, we're generating a lot of volume earlier in the year, you know, before we start to intensify. Um, and then on your secondary work, I'm fine with that being a seven to a nine. You know, that's like a tricep push down overhead press yeah. or something like that. Um, and then, but however, when they're four weeks out, I might be having them hit singles at a nine and a half, you know, or or you know, one week out. Testing, testing openers, which would be hitting a single at like an eight or so. And even going through a block of training aimed at, you know, singles that are, you know, an eight, nine, nine and a half kind of range because I want them to specifically be ready to peak for a comp. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, there, there's definitely a time and a place for, for going near failure. Um, and it's when someone's going to be, you know, either, either testing near failure to, to assess progress yeah. uh, or, or potentially even uh, competing. Uh, where they might be taking that, that hopefully third attempt, if any attempt, to, to failure, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, actually, I, and it's funny, I, I program very similar to your set, like, because in your book, you showed some block periodization models, and uh, I um, I, I would utilize very similar models with parallels, like accumulation, intensification, realization, and in the realization, that's when we are starting to take singles over 90 very close to competition, and we're, we have our comp competitive gear, it's highly specific, competitive gear, your belt, your wraps, Whereas in the yeah. early in the earlier phases would be more general, no belt, no wraps, higher volume sort of stuff. So we're going for general to specific, and I kind of utilize per lipids chart then maybe with the ninety percent volumes over. So like yeah, very similar to, to, to yourself. So no, it's just just great to get your thoughts on it too. Um, Eric, that that's absolutely golden. Th thanks so much for making the time today and for uh, you know rescheduling on the last minute. Uh, you know, um, so I, I really appreciate it. You're an absolute gentleman and. Uh, Danny Danny Lennon's one hundred percent correct in, in that uh, he, he's he's like Eric Helms is absolutely sound. S sound is the Irish word for like that you're a top class bloke like. Awesome. So uh, I, I'd love to have you back on again at some stage to talk about the nutrition pyramid. I, I am again to do you justice. I want to even though I've watched your videos and, and we'll link that to uh, I'll put the the YouTube videos for the nutrition pyramid and the training pyramid on the show notes. I'll also link to the uh, the um, muscle and strength um. And pyramids train and uh, um, ebooks, Book. yeah, yep. which are absolutely brilliant. That you that you done with Andy Moore and um, he also did with Albert Nunez, isn't it? 
Uh, Andrew Valdez. Oh, sorry, Andrew Valdez. Excuse me. That's right. It's the, the, the other Mexican on. Yeah, I thought it was Oliver. Sorry, on the put out anymore. So we'll we'll uh, link all to all that in the show notes. And um, finally, maybe do you want to touch on um, Shredded by Science, which is a, a an online education. Um, awesome. Hey, I appreciate the, the, the show opportunity, most definitely. But uh, no, well, first let me just say it's it's great to be on. And uh, Shredded by Science is a really cool group. Uh, the minds behind that are Luke Johnson and Lawrence Judd. They're out in the UK, and they are, in my opinion, going to be changing the face of personal trainer education and continuing education. And myself and Dr. Michael Zerdos uh, have the good fortune of teaching one of the units in their personal trainer course. I teach the one on coaching physique competitors, and uh, Mike teaches the one on coaching powerlifters. And uh, they're just doing awesome things. It's a year-long course. Um where you really learn everything you could possibly need to know um, about, uh, you know, working with people. And it's just fantastic content. I can't say enough good, good enough things about uh, the team out there, and it's an honor to be a part of it. And they do two intakes every year. I want to say they're going to start uh, one up very soon in September, so definitely check out uh, Shredded by Science Academy. And then finally, about 3D Muscle Journey, where can everyone find out about that and how can people contact you? For sure, yeah. So we also do some coaching, and, and we have our, our podcast and you know, blog articles, all the whole, all the good stuff where we try to supply the, you know, uh, drug-free lifting community. And that is uh, 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, uh, the letter D, and then musclejourney.com. And you can check out our YouTube as well, uh, which we have a link to on the website, but I'll give it to you as well. That's just YouTube slash Team3DMJ. Absolutely brilliant. So, guys, what an absolutely brilliant hour and almost 10 minutes with uh, Eric Helms. Soon to be Dr. Eric Helms. Um, once he gets his PhD so I uh, just want to thank Eric again so much for taking his time just stay on the line Eric for like another you know, 20 seconds while I hit stop and I can say my goodbye stuff line. but for everyone sure. listening we'll have Eric back on we'll be talking about his uh, his nutrition uh, manual that also is the second part of the Muscle and Strength Pyramids ebook series so I can't wait to get him back on for that but uh, I was going to say to do you just as an author I want to read through the book because I said I've watched the videos but I want to read through the book so I can you know get the questions that I want to ask and delve into the details like we've done here today to make it a talk class uh, interview. So guys, thanks for listening. Share this podcast. Um, I really appreciate your listenership. If you can leave reviews and as I said, share it around on social media, it would be brilliant. So for now, take care. I'll talk to you soon and everyone stay strong. Mm-hmm.